0: Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast.
1: Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. Learn how to communicate. Learn how to communicate, and there's no telling where that combination of skill set will take you, because I always knew that if you wanted to make partner... You had to know how to market accounting services, but it was a long time before I ever saw anybody in the accounting world want to teach me how to message. to message.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. That clip was from Michael Berlanga. I invited Michael on the show for a few reasons. He worked in the large national firms early in his career, but then he started his own practice and has morphed it into something a little unique. Plus, and this is a first for us, he ran for political office a couple times, not because he had a burning desire to become an elected official, but rather because he was asked to and thought it would be a good time to try to make a difference if he could. I'm going to give a disclaimer here. I'm not trying to make any type of political statement or promote an affiliation by the invitation. Rather, I've run into other accountants along the way in my own career that have had an interest in getting politically active. So I figured this story of Michael's experience would be very beneficial to anyone that happens to have those aspirations as well. Plus, he's got some valuable insight into building a niche within your own self-employment endeavors as well. With that, we'll go ahead and get started. Here's Michael Berlanga.
2: Well, hello, Michael. Welcome to Life in Accounting. I appreciate you taking the time to share your experience with us. I know it's going to be valuable to our listeners. You you definitely have a unique story.
1: Well, thanks for thinking of it that way. I hope, I uh, hope it'll be beneficial to the listening audience because it's been a privilege to to study accounting and, and claim the profession that I've been part of for 35 years. Wow,
2: 35. Well, I know there are several parts that will be interesting and unique, particularly the recent political involvement and in the campaign and so on and so forth. But I definitely want to cover the earlier, you know, more traditional accounting roles as well, so the audience can get an idea of where you are today and and really where you came from, so that they understand that. So, let's start at an earlier point in your career. How did you even initially think about or decide to look into accounting as a career option. What led you to accounting?
1: Well, uh, I have to go back to when I was 14 and my father died suddenly of a stroke. And so the choice of of what to do with my life was suddenly put into a sense of urgency to get out of high school in three years. I did at Central Catholic because I knew that if I went to the seminary, it would be much more expensive than the scholarships that I was being offered at even high school level, and at Central Catholic, I was encouraged to take a bookkeeping course a sophomore, and then in a full year of accounting, which is basically like accounting 101 at the university level, but it was in high school. My brother, who had studied finance at St. Mary's University, where I also attended, he had one day come in home and said to me, he said, you should go into accounting, unlike he had done, because he had gone into finance." Because he had read an article about a CFO that had been promoted to CEO at Continental Airlines, And he said, the accountants, the CPAs, they always get the best opportunities. And that was very pivotal. It was real significant. I was already studying accounting. I got a brother I trust that uh, saw the inspiration of something on the national level. So I just continued that, that study as I went to St. Mary's University, where, where I um, immediately was able to accelerate through the first couple of courses until I got into intermediate account. But at that time, Arthur Anderson had just opened an office in San Antonio. It was our first office in San Antonio. And I was encouraged by the department chairman at the university to interview. Hmm. And the funny thing about that was, I really wasn't interested in, <laughs> in getting a job. I was painfully employed in the funeral industry. So I'd I like to say, I. I've worked in death and taxes, but but the reality, was, I, I, you know, you don't tell the department chairman that, that you're working in a funeral home and you're really not interested in working in, in a public accounting firm, especially one like Arthur Anderson. So I went to interview with Arthur Anderson. And the best part of that was when they asked me if I was interested in working for him, I flat out told him, I said, well, I went to the trouble of interviewing. So I guess I, if you offer me a job, I guess I, probably should take it because I didn't know the difference between the big eight and the Pac-10 or any of the other football conferences. And at the time, that's what the major firms were referred to as. So I went to work for Arthur Anderson and it was a full-time, part-time position. By that I mean, it wasn't an internship. It wasn't a semester, but at the end, no, it was, it was a permanent gig that allowed me to work while going to St. Mary's university and finishing my degree. But again, in that acceleration, I got out of 20. And I did not want to go into audit, did not want to kick tires and take inventory and and that sort of the traditional audit role. And the only way to avoid going into audit and wanting to go directly into a tax department at that time was either you had a law degree or you got a master's in tax. So I immediately applied, got accepted and started graduate school at UTSA, where two years later I completed my master's in tax. All at the same time, I made the switch to Arthur Young. And that's kind of funny because... Arthur Young needed a point guard in their CPA basketball league. And I told him, no pay, no play. And I said, well, I'll play your point guard if you'll hire me. And so I went from Arthur Anderson to Arthur Young. And when I completed there, I was blessed to meet someone like yourself accidentally who told me that they could get me an interview at Coopers and Librand in Austin, Texas. And I, at the time, had the opportunity to go live with my brother and, and continue uh, this learning curve. and. And career path by being a tax senior, supervising senior at Cooper's and Library. So that's that's the, the formal corporate years, but at the age of 24, 25, I was burned out on big eight, on um, public accounting and
2: wow. and I,
1: I said I'd get out of it and I thought I'd get into real estate and I took a real estate course and next thing I know, I'm sitting next to a young lady who's doing the bookkeeping for her father who's a doctor and I was telling her how you know anybody can learn to do bookkeeping and give her a little guidance. The next thing I know, I became their CPA. So kind of like Al Pacino and The Godfather. Just when you think you're getting out, they suck you back in. The next thing you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm doing accounting and taxes for physicians, and I'm asked to lecture at the dental school and medical school in San Antonio to these up and coming residents. And I built an accounting practice based on startup physicians and dentists because at the time. They needed me most when they could afford me the least. So I was very popular with physicians and dentists. And this was long before spreadsheets and overnight. This was before the internet. So to get on a plane and go to Washington or go to Falls Church, Virginia, to help some doctor get a loan, I had to put together the loan package and then walk them through the banks. And getting that doctor that loan to start their practice, naturally, I was the first choice to be there accountant or CPA. But being a CPA with a master's in tax gave me more confidence having worked for the big firms that I knew tax better than most CPAs because as you know, there's not a huge requirement, especially back then. You could Truly, you could fail all the tax questions on a CPA exam and still become a CPA. Now, I don't know if that's true by today's CPA exam, but that that was the case then and so I was yeah. more proud of being a master, having a master's in tax as it related to what I was offering for services and bringing cost accounting mindsets and cash flow budgeting mindsets into these owner-managed businesses because they didn't care about GAP. They didn't care about generally accepted accounting principles. They just needed to know how to get a loan, how to manage their, their cash flow budget. So that's, that's kind of the, the formality of my academic years leading into
2: professional years, which then led into
1: self-employment.
2: There's a lot to there's a lot to get more details on there I, I'm just curious you said you you were burned out quote unquote at age 24 25 obviously public accounting isn't for everybody what what was it about public at that time that just wasn't sitting right with you anymore
1: well i i watched the partners and many of the partners were in my opinion they were glorified employees i mean the, the, the status of becoming a okay. partner is very alluring when you're 25 and 26 But as I said before, I graduated from high school in three years, I graduated from college in three years, and now I'm working my way through the firms, being told it's going to take 10 to 12 years to make partner. Well, why? Why should it take me 10 to 12 years to make partner? They told me it would take me four years to get out of high school. They told me it would take four years to get out of college, take two years to go through graduate school. and None of those classical timelines did I ever exhaust. I was always ahead of the game, but I could see that there was such a conservative culture of oh, no, it's going to take you five years to make manager and then five years to make partner, and that's only if you're really good. And I just didn't buy into the culture. While I definitely was was enthralled with the study of internal revenue code and and helping people and advocating for people, as I do today, to pay as little taxes as possible, I I didn't agree with the perception that I have to work from dawn to dusk. I mean, you didn't see daylight during the business season and you, you worked hours that were, in some cases, just not even productive, because the perception was if you clocked in to 60 or 70 hours a week, then that was what was essential to meeting artificial deadlines that the government has set based on filing deadlines of the tax season. And after, you know, I started at 19 with Arthur Anderson, and it by the age of 25, I was six years into it. I And three firms later, I just thought maybe there was, something else I could do, never never thinking that uh, I'd still be in accounting. I just thought, well, maybe real estate might give me a different lifestyle.
2: Did you ever end up working as a real estate agent? Oh, or uh, or, did, or did you just well, absolutely. at the time?
1: At the time. Yeah, uh-huh. No, at the time, I, I got my license and I immediately oh. uh, hung up with a broker who uh, was independent and didn't have a big shop, but he, he, he taught me a few things about commercial real estate. But as my accounting practice you know, came upon, I like to say there's two different ways of being paid. You can be paid fee-for-service, or you can be paid a commission. And if you don't have the wherewithal to wait for the commissions, it's better to be paid fee-for-service. And so as I was at that age, it was I was more inclined towards taking on accounting clients and having some continuity of cash flow versus the risk of working on a deal for three, six, nine, or over a year only to see a deal fail and not be paid a commission. And so I did some deals. In fact, I, that's one of the things I did for the first doctor accounting clients I ever had. I helped them buy a piece of property, and next thing you know, I'm you know making a nice commission. But again, my conservative nature drew me towards, well, I'll build up a client accounting base. I'll enjoy the trust of these people. I'll have a front row seat at their lives. It was more comfortable then, It was later on in life that I re-engaged in commercial real estate. Having already passed the exam once, I even let my license lapse, but the second time around it was even easier such that I didn't realize that uh, by that point they allowed you to use calculators. So I was passing it with a longhand division (laughs) instead of using a calculator. But the joke joke is for anybody that's listening that thinks that it's more glamorous to be in these other professions, I'll tell you that it, it might sound more glamorous because some of these other licensing professionals will brag on it, but there's nothing more trusted in my experience than to say, oh, I'm a CPA who happens to also do commercial real estate or CPA who happens to also do tax consulting. So I always lead in with the CPA and then overcome that whatever prejudice might be put upon me if somebody thinks being a CPA isn't exciting enough for them. So, okay. that, that, so yes, I I, I I had a license. I let it lapse. I regained it, and at the age of forty, I had a concussion. I had a car accident. I had a concussion, and that gave me the opportunity to say, I'm going to get out of the accounting practice of preparation and managing accounting clients, and I'm just going to focus on real estate. And the market was prime for me to be in the real estate market. It was just a great time to to take on some projects and opportunities that were very rewarding. But it gave me a break from accounting by, say, the age of 40 to uh, 48. I I really was was out of it. I wasn't preparing returns. I wasn't consulting on accounting. And Then I got sucked back in with with the market crashing in the real estate and the political nature of the IRS uh, creating a new niche for me. And That was helping people with IRS problems and planning without even being involved in the preparation of the returns. That's why I got sucked into the politics. I was helping somebody get elected in the State House of Representatives. The next thing you know, he's being audited, and I'm thinking it's no big deal, just a routine audit. But I came to learn later that there seemed to be a, a trend, and that trend was that many conservatives slash tea party leadership people were finding themselves, perhaps systemically or accidentally, only God knows the truth, but they suddenly were. There was a proliferation of opportunities to help people with audits and liens and levies and other kinds of investigations. So that's how I got sucked back in the the second time, if you will, in my career, because I found it fascinating to give people peace by having them sign a power of attorney and then engaging the IRS in a conversation. But generally, from my experience, it was pretty pleasant because I wasn't defending my work. It wasn't my return that I prepared
2: that I was having to defend.
1: It was somebody else's work.
2: Okay. So resolutions now started way back with right after you got your real estate license in it sounded like well not not the first time, but when I had the car accident
1: and and at the age of forty and had a concussion i'd taken i i sold my accounting practice to one of my accountants he took over all the all the preparation work, and he would refer to me real estate and mortgage leave. My rationale was if I can get you the money, I can do more for you in the real estate world than somebody who can't even get you the money. The M-O-R-E acronym came to mind. And I said, just send me that stuff. You do your thing and we'll continue to take care of these clients, but I'm not going to be the primary uh, tax return preparer or point of contact for accounting. That was a dynamic period of my life. For 10 years, I I got involved in all kinds of real estate negotiations and specifically one that was life-changing involved A client who was an attorney that introduced me to a situation where 83 condominium owners were suing every contractor that had had anything to do with their condominiums, as well as the architect and the engineers. They were basically saying that the construction defects were going to cause $7 million of damages. Well, under the Deceptive Trade Practice Act, $7 million of damages, it's proven that it falls underneath the act, would automatically be tripled to $21 million judgment. So I had the leverage to negotiate a circumstance because I wasn't involved. I was not the realtor, nor was I a contractor, nor was I an owner of the condominium. But a law firm brought me in because they thought I might have a bright idea. And my bright idea was that I would bring an investor in. And between the money from the insurance company, and the money from the investor, we would buy out all these condominium owners and let them go down the road without the risk of losing three times the actual damage amount, and that formula led me to giving testimony that I said, I just read a scripture. I told this group of attorneys, I, said, I just read the scripture, and it says, I tell you the truth, no is believed in his own hometown. So I figured if it was good enough for Jesus to leave Nazareth, I guess I could leave San Antonio, or go to Austin, sell a product that isn't on the market, and resolve a conflict for people that I'm not in conflict with, and they said it was impossible. And then I referred to our favorite tax collector, Matthew, and I said, well, according to Matthew, with God, all things are possible. But since it's not probable, why don't you give me a fee? And then if I do the deal, I'll get a commission on top of it. And so that was life-changing. I mean, ever since then, uh, we start out with, how do you get 83 kind of Indian owners who are suing 17 different contractors you know, to go away when the odds are 100 to 1 that you can get them all to agree on anything? And, and it's by giving witness to to the possibility that if it's God's will, then it doesn't matter what our logic might do to limit a solution. So resolutions now grew out of that circumstance. I said, at the end of it, they asked me, so what do you do? And I said, I don't know. I, I guess I find solutions in real estate or I find resolutions to people who have problems with taxes and the government. So resolutions now seemed like a good name, a good title, a good uh, a descriptive word to describe what I was doing. But all I was really doing was just trying to bring a new energy and a new approach to problems by telling the truth. And you've got, not everybody accepted my my suggestions, sure. but I knew that I was giving them the truth. And, and I would tell them that it's God's will, then my truth might become your truth and there might be in the, solu- the solution to your problem. So that's what I do, tell people wow. the truth in a creative way.
2: Okay, so it's not it's not just IRS resolutions.
1: It's no, it could be. Well, I I, I want to build a dental office and I only need half an acre. What do I do? Because the only property available is five acres. Well, we've got a plan for the remainder. We've got to buy this whole parcel and take advantage of the fact that it has a house on it. And the house, if you make it your residence, well, then you can exempt the gain of the rest of the land if you can hold on to it as your residence for two years. Oh, I didn't think about that. So told me. I practiced what I preached, I bought five acres for the country club, had a house on it, made it a residence. Meanwhile, I subdivided the balance of the land, took advantage of the allocation of the least amount to the house to get the highest gain to the residence and the most of the purchase price to the land that was going to be developed into residential and office lots. So there's a solution that has nothing to do with necessarily the IRS, but it draws from my experience. And knowledge of the tax laws, but it's, the emphasis is on a real estate play.
2: Interesting. Well, I know you were and you touched on this earlier, and I definitely want to get into this. You, so, you worked as a senior advisor to a state representative. You've run for accounting office yourself. How'd you get into politics, and why would you do such a crazy thing?
1: <laughs> well, that's a good question, and I was I was asked that. Are you crazy? But I've been married. We hadn't had children, we decided after thirteen years of marriage to go our separate ways and a non denominational minister with another candidate from another district in city for city council came into my office looking for donations and they turned the tables on me. And when they learned about my background they said, Well, forget us. We should you should run for city council. So I said, Well, really that's not what I would think would be the logical transition from filing for divorce to filing for office but I said Well, let me check with my wife, seemed to be ex-wife, and I sent her an email and said, what do you think? And she said, well, your credentials are excellent, politics are petty, keep me out of it. So I figured I had half a vote, and I thought that's a good start, that's God's humor. So I took on the opportunity, because I had the freedom of time without children and without spouse, to go door to door and saying, oh, by the way, I'm Mike prolonger If you give me three minutes of your life, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about me. And maybe you'll vote for me because it doesn't cost you anything to vote for me. And you do that enough times and the therapy of saying something positive about yourself starts to become a little addicting. But I met so many wonderful people knocking on doors and standing on street corners that, you know, the, the commandment of loving one another is never greater tested than when you literally leave no one. Out from the possibility that they may be someone you represent, they may be. Even it doesn't matter if they're Democrat or Republican. It's a vote, and every vote might be make all the difference in the world. So I ran for city council, and though I won the general election, I didn't get enough votes to win without a runoff. But in the runoff, what was exciting was I was protesting some property taxes, and my opponent seized the opportunity to use the newspaper to make a headline out of it, as if I had committed a crime. And at the time. The idea of protesting your property taxes by many who are ignorant to the process was perceived as something immoral. So that headline alone was very contributory to me losing in a runoff an opportunity to be a city councilman. But as a result of losing in the headline, I met a guy named John Garza. And John calls me up and says, Mike, I'm John Garza. And I ran for state rep and lost. So I said, well, John, uh, you know, are you, do you want to form a loser's club? Because I figured that's the only thing that he was calling about, but he wanted me to represent him in suing the bear appraisal district. And at the time, I, I reminded him I wasn't an attorney, nor am I now, but he, he pursued the conversation to the point that he encouraged me to run for state rep. And I said, I don't live in the district. And he pointed out that neither did the current state rep, but I said, well, there's your opportunity. There's your headline. So I helped him run. He won. and He took me with him to Austin, and I got to spend six months working in the legislature, hiring the staff, creating the budget, and learning everything about state legislature from the inside out, which led to being asked by uh, some members of the Republican Party of Texas to run for state Senate for the border district that had never been occupied by a Republican. Fast forward three years later, I I was unsuccessful in, in winning that seat that year, but four years later... Uh, Another opportunity was presented to me, and that was when the county chairman of Bexar County said, you ought to run for tax assessor because you're the only only one qualified based on your credentials as a CPA. Assess that opportunity to learn about the property tax code, inspire people to protest their taxes and inform them of their their rights. And I thought it was a no-lose situation. Worst case is, I win. Best case is, I'm inspiring people to pay less taxes, which seems to be a constant theme in my life. The IRS is shorthanded, they're overworked, they're undercompensated, they're not production or commission-based, and they certainly don't seek to incarcerate before they collect, or even when they're unable to collect. And my experience with the IRS has been mutually dynamic as I've made numerous contacts with people that work for the entire service, and it's just been not what I would have ever expected. If you told me, go to work dealing with the IRS, you'll have to put up with it or you'll have to endure certain personalities. I would tell you it was just the opposite. I've enjoyed working with these people as long as I I don't condescend. I don't deceive. I don't distract. I don't disrespect. I find that it's very fulfilling work helping people work out their cash flow problems or maybe their ignorance of filing deadline problems, set them back towards whatever it is they do. I mean, if whether they're realtors or doctors or whatever their work is, go do your work. Let the accountants and the tax experts get that part of your life in order. Don't be fearful of the government. Don't be disrespectful. Let's get that in order. Let's resolve our conflict and let's get you back to making money. And I think that's where 57 uh, started down this road when I was 17. And and I I look forward to 40 more years with this because my mother's 97. And so she keeps pushing the goal line back. I don't think... uh, I don't think I can start planning uh, planning my death anytime soon.
2: (laughs) Is there anything you learned through that process of running, well, helping John with his campaign, and then running for the senate and and the tax assessor position yourself? Is there anything you learned in going through that that surprised you?
1: I think what surprises me the most is that, well, at the grassroots level, what surprises me is, is how empowering it is to combine your faith the politics of, of asking people for support. Because if the two greatest commandments, as, as I understand scripture to teach us, is to love God to of our heart and love one another, it doesn't matter who the audience is. If I put that as my premise before a political audience, then I've opened the door to conversations that might be more significant than who they're voting for. And then when you think about getting elected, nobody ever gets elected unless they have no opposition with 100% of the vote. So you know that if you win with 51% of the vote, 49% of the people that voted, you still have to represent. And considering the apathy in voting, the percentage of people that vote does not represent even a simple majority of the people that that you will represent. So you're representing a majority of a minority of people. Therefore, the majority of people you represent haven't even given you their support. But if your faith leads you to wanting to represent them, then it's a real easy leap. That's the positive part. Let's just say the the less encouraging part is dealing with the polarization of people by virtue of two-party ideology that seek to motivate you to identify with their ideology, unfortunately based on a dislike to the point of almost anger and hate of the other side. But most Gallup polls will prove out that less than 50% of the population will identify with Republican or Democrat over a long period of time. And so, you know, we find ourselves trying to be appreciative of the 60% of the audience that doesn't identify with either party, but unfortunately is not vocal enough to come up with a third alternative or, or to help you when you wish to do God's work or bring your faith into government when the pressure of the party wants you to lip-speak or one-speak their message, their platform. As in the case most recently with the presidential election, I think this bears uh, hearing by anyone who has any interest in politics and is at the same time faith-based, and perhaps for that reason might uh, avoid the opportunity. When I was uh, campaigning at a a forum in front of the Council of American-Islamic Relations in a month where the balance of the judicial candidates that were on the forum with me were not answering questions about anything because they said, well, based on the ethical standards of judicial conduct, they can't talk about immigration. They can't talk about profiling. They can't talk about oh, whatever. You, you name it, they seem to have a reason under those standards. They can't talk. I said, well, thank God I'm not running for judge because I can tell you this much, taxes aren't Republican or Democrat. In full disclosure, I'm president of the Christian Chamber of Commerce, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. I said, so the other part of it is, I was told to love you whether you vote for me or not. And so it's very empowering for me to use the government, whether it's local, city, or state, or federal, and use those forums to do the Great Commission, and that's to grow the kingdom. And I would say to anybody that's out there advising clients and trying to figure out how to reconcile their faith to business, if they're integrating their faith with their business, and in some way, God in his infinite wisdom blesses that initiative to grow the kingdom, which is the Great Commission, according to Matthew in the last chapter, then maybe you'll earn more commission, I like to say tongue-in-cheek, if you do the Great Commission. So for me, it's, it's, I've come full circle. You know, I, I didn't get to be a priest because my father died. I got the opportunity to get a scholarship. I went into accounting, and here I am now trying to help people both politically, professionally, and personally realize that by integrating your faith into what you do, you're empowered to love on people that through loving on them, they're probably going to want your help. They're going to want your help in accounting. They're going to want your help with the government. They're going to want your help finding their dreams come true because they find a piece of land and they want to build their dream home or their dream office or or enlarge their business or own the building they've been renting for 15 years. So, it's a very fulfilling way to integrate those orientations. And I no longer believe in the separation of church and state. I, I believe that that state should respect church and church should be used to, to fellowship. But in the workplace, I believe we should advance our faith without discrimination for gender or race or religious denomination. And if we do that, our businesses will flourish. Our businesses will flourish beyond our imagination, but it, Fortunately, people don't have an imagination, so they ask us to put together budgets, <laughs> and they ask us to limit uh, what the most likely case will be on the revenue side. But you know, but I, I tell people when I do budgets, I do worst case, best case, and God's case, which might be beyond the best case.
2: Well, there's a few questions I end every podcast with, but before we get to that, I, I have one other question. So we've walked through you know, how you got into accounting your time in public accounting, becoming self-employed, getting into politics. You know, your your endeavors in those arenas. Thinking back on all that, I guess is there anything you would have done differently? Is there anything you would have done sooner, done later, not done, jumped in more more wholeheartedly? Not a regret, but just if you thought that there weren't any any consequences, no butterfly effect, <laughs> anything you would have done differently?
1: Wow, that's a, that's a great question. I've been blessed to be asked a lot of questions. I think what I was telling you before we uh, started the, the, the broadcast was I, I would have been blessed to learn the different social styles of communication at a younger age. I was in my early 40s and I was working in a consulting capacity and, and got to be introduced uh, by a dental practice consultant to the social styles of communication. And those social styles, which are evenly divided in the English-speaking population between high-feelers and low-feelers and high-thinkers and low-thinkers, are what I affectionately would point to the occupations of accounting, surgeons, that's a low-thinker to a high-thinker, receptionist to a salesman, that's a low-feeler to a high-feeler. And the reason I use those expressions is because, by way of example, as accountants, you know, we're attentive to detail, but we're not obsessing if we apply the the concepts of materiality and relevance, and nobody dies from our work, at least I hope not. But uh, the surgeon, they're going to obsess to a higher level of detail. And so that's a high thinker. I mean, if they get it wrong, people die. We get it wrong, worst case is somebody might lose some money. At least I hope that's the worst case. But no one's going to die. Feelers, a receptionist is going to be very intuitive, but she's not necessarily going, or he may not be necessarily inclined towards a purpose. They're not driving the emotional interaction with that person as a salesman might. So I would say to anyone that is studying accounting, or is mastered accounting, or is proficient in facts and the presentation of facts, is as much times you can spend learning how to articulate your presentation, not just through spreadsheets, not just through emails, but through managing your messaging for the benefit of your audience. If you recognize that 75% of your audience is not going to receive the message the way you deliver it, then if you flex your style so that you can inform, entertain, and inspire people, the larger the audience will accept your message, whether that means hiring you to be their CPA firm or hiring you to, to be their CFO and not their controller by way of more traditional analogies. Because I believe that our accounting language is just a stepping stone to maybe what is a different role that God might want us to play in the lives of the businesses that we have. So I would have learned that sooner. I mean, not that I could have studied it. I mean, today, you Google it and you can learn it. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I share this information readily, but I was not encouraged between the ages of 20 and 30 when I was told, you know, keep learning the Revenue code. Or, keep learning how to do spreadsheets? Well, there comes a point when I realize knowledge is the retention of facts, but intelligence is the ability to adapt those facts for the optimal benefit of those who want that knowledge. And I would tell anyone that has become proficient in analytical skills, as every accountant seems to be, learn how to communicate. Learn how to communicate, and there's no telling where that combination of skill set will take you, because. I always knew that if you wanted to make partner, you had to know how to market accounting services. But it was a long time before I ever saw anybody in the accounting world want to teach me how to how to message. And when you learn how to message, it's not the golden rule. I always say the golden rule is do unto others as you have them do unto you. But when it comes to communication, speak unto others as they wish to be spoken unto. And if you, if you do that, I like to say to the dentist, it's, it's stronger than a titanium dental implant. It'll integrate into your listener's motivation to want to learn more from you. And there's so much to learn out there from us. I say us, the accounting profession, because we are we are the translators. We're going to tell them what happened. And the other thing I would say is that I'm glad I did. Early on, I incorporated my cost accounting background into budgeting, and I helped people distinguish their streams those costs that vary with volume and those costs that were fixed and to understand that uh, that it isn't just about helping them pay the least amount of taxes. It's helping them anticipate the budgeting for their cash flows in a way that they could understand and that, that isn't found in, in generally accepted accounting principles and it isn't found in alphabetic sequencing of, of outflows. It's, I think, communication and understanding where our accounting systems traditionally leave off is where the deposits are made. But if you want to do above-the-line accounting, as I refer to it, help people understand how to be accountable for their marketing and their management. And in marketing, what is the relationship that it takes between likes, as we say in the Facebook world, to leads, to contracts, to closings that then result in dollars? As accountants, we're traditionally just accounting for the deposits. But if we make our clients and help our clients measure the accountability of their marketing efforts, that map—I like to call it a marketing action plan—that map will get them to wherever they're going sooner. And I think the the tools we have today, at my age of 57, as I said before, are incredibly more powerful and and cost-efficient than the columns and rows approach to manually spreadsheeting projections. We should be projecting and projecting and projecting, and then measuring performance to projection as quickly as possible. And and I think that's going to be our legacy of this generation of accountants too, to the clients that we, we can serve differently than what than the prior generation did.
2: Okay. Well, there's a few questions I end every podcast with. I want to be respectful of your time. First one is, what has been your proudest moment?
1: Wow. <laughs> I think my proudest moment was graduating at the end of my high school years, I started out of high school with a four A's and two B's. First semester, my mother was so proud of me. She said, oh, that's great. And I knew that if I had studied just a little bit harder, those two B's could have been two A's. And so I made a private, you know, I said, if she's that proud of me, imagine how she'd feel if I never made another B. So I said, I'm never going to make another B. I didn't tell her that, but I, I set that out. Well, three years later, I graduated at the top of my class, which was a miracle in coming from behind because most valetorians, and, uh, you know, they finish with four O's or 3.98. Well, I guess it must have been a class of more challenged students because 3.93 got me to the top. And graduating after three years, top of your class, in front of a wow. getting to sit on stage, and then having the person who spoke on my behalf because they didn't let us speak at, at my high school, you would pick a speaker. I said, just... Just honor my mother because, you know, my father died. Who would have thought three years later I'd be sitting there? So the, I'd say that was my proudest moment. I think my second proudest moment, I have to tell you this one, is I coached grade school basketball, and we used to make the kids make seven free throws in a row before they could get a uniform. And they didn't have to do anything other than all the other drills, but that took some of these children a couple hours. Well, one young man in particular took them five hours. And I mean, you start out at 10 o'clock, and it's three in the afternoon and you haven't had lunch. and You're a squawny little seventh grader. Well, he makes the team. Fortunately, he persevered. And 40 years later, we're on Facebook and I don't even, haven't talked to him. I'm talking to all the guys that are on the team that were the leaders of the team, that was an undefeated team, won championships. And I said, do you remember, Tim, remember how long it took? And out of nowhere, he comes into the Facebook chat. Now, this is somebody I hadn't spoken to in 30 years. And he said, I was the worst player on that team, and I don't need to be reminded, he says, except that what I learned on the basketball court may not have made me the best basketball player, but it helped me in other areas of my life. And he goes on to say that even though he was the worst player, that it made a difference, uh, even though I would tell him, you know, if you miss a shot because you failed to concentrate, it wasn't just unacceptable, it was a moral failure, which obviously was rather extreme for a sport. <laughs> an eighth grader. But I thought, Well you know, my goodness, what is he doing now? So I went over to his Facebook status because I realized that perhaps he wasn't uh, hadn't fallen into the addiction and, and hadn't declared turns out he went to Harvard Law School and he's a chief deputy in the Department of Justice. Oh my so gosh. if you asked me what I put on my tombstone I'd take that and if you asked me, you know, what I did in life I would say hopefully I honored my mom for what she did without my father having de- died in a way that you just blessed every once in a while to do something that, you know, you'll never do again and you don't do often.
2: Wow. Well, on the flip side, tell us about a mistake you've made because I can't let you get away with just a… No, no,
1: mistakes. How many? I I don't know Uh, if we have
2: enough Well, We have to start over.
1: I've I've got an hour of mistakes. I'd say the biggest mistake I made was not taking time to appreciate the time that we're given away from all books work that I've been given. You know, my father died at his his desk, you know, at a young age. And I think when I outlived him at the age of 56, he died when I was 14, he was 55. I think I realized that you either do one of two things, either segregate your recreation or you recreate while you work. And I think that's the biggest mistake I would say I made was that in my younger years, I segregated the recreation and always thought that it was that I was missing out something on the other side. Now, through my life, I've been able to enjoy traveling and doing things that I never dreamed I would do when I was younger, to places I've never would have thought would have would have have gotten to see. But I would say the biggest mistake was was not taking time out for myself, and so I make up for it now. I recreate while I work, and I think I think the other mistake, if if I could call it a mistake, was being slower to. To know the word of god and be less consumed with knowing what a particular religion instructed me in how i'm supposed to know god and i didn't start really into into a serious bible study until i was 40 even though i was raised in in a very organized religion and that that would be a mistake i would i would claim i recently went to see the case for christ and and it talks about it's about an author who went from atheism to faith by trying to prove to his wife that jesus didn't exist I saw it once on Wednesday. Two days later, I saw it again, and the movie had so much more meaning for me the second time. The script is so tight; you got to pay attention. And I would say the same thing of the movie *Chair at the Fire*. So, like the Bible, these movies have reminded me: it, the story never gets old. <laughs> and and if you can find inspiration in the story, then go back to the inspiration. Go back to the story. So
2: there you go. There you go. You should go back and listen to. The interview I did with Craig Fuller. He was he's the president. I'm sorry, executive director for Daily Bread Ministries, and he talks about his experience. He's a CPA, became a pastor, and now runs Daily Bread Ministries. And that that was a really good episode. It's probably about a month ago, maybe a little longer. So that was a real good one. Well, thank you very much, Michael. This has, mm-hmm. been, this has been good. Uh, actually, there's a whole lot more twists and turns I didn't know about, so this is good. I'm glad we got to the social styles of communication conversation as well. I need to look that up. That was very helpful. If someone wanted to find out more just about resolutions now or, or get in contact with you, do you have a website that I can I- point them to?
1: I don't don't know that I do that's active. I can just give you my phone number. It's 210-273-1177. Or my favorite email address is michael at re-now.net. re-now.net is the best way to drop me a line or ask me a question. And I'll do my part to be responsive.
2: I've never heard someone say they have a favorite email address. <laughs>
1: well, you know, you know. Let me tell
2: you, it's my favorite because re
1: I say it, they say, "Well, what does that stand for?" I don't know. Real estate Republican. Get real. And then dash now is because everybody has a sense of urgency when they're calling me, because I'm sure that you know most of our listeners feel the same way. Cause, and then .dot net is different than .dot com because they usually want us to network what we know or who we know to whatever their situation is. So re-now.net. Michael there we ad. go.
2: Okay. I thought maybe you just got less junk mail there or something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no. If I if I said Michael, I mean, I, I actually probably have the email address, Michael at resolutions now, Inc. or something like that. But it, it takes too long to write it. People don't have time to write all that down. just re-now.net, Michael at re. So there you go. that's what I would tell people. Uh, thank you for having me and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to get to know you better and for we'll to work together some more.
2: Yeah, I look forward to talking to you more. Thanks a lot. You have a great day.
0: That was Michael Berlanga, CPA, owner of Resolutions Now, and a previous contender for a few political offices here in South Texas. I hope you enjoyed this episode I particularly appreciated the discussion at the end about the social styles of communication. I've often thought that when we're all in college taking the accounting courses, it would be good to get more training on the dynamics of working with different personality types, how to relate to people with different backgrounds, etc, etc, because, after all, After you get just a few years of experience, your promotability really ends up having a whole lot more to do with your people skills than almost anything else. This has been Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. If you're looking to grow your career, please visit our website at www.whereaccountantsgo.com for links to all the different certifications as well as many of the professional associations. If you're enjoying all the episodes, the biggest compliment you can give us is to refer us to a friend. Well, I hope to see you all next week and there's more to come.